And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this week, I've got another entry into my Wild West exploration. We've already covered the Wild West itself, the characters of the Wild West, railroads, barbed wire, and today, we're going to talk about the handgun of the West, the very gun you see in all the the shootouts and showdowns. I'm talking about the Colt revolver, specifically the single action army. This is the handgun of the Wild West. It's the cowboy handgun. And it is, it's actually remarkable on how we got to this point. The, the idea that you could have a handgun that could fire multiple shots without being reloaded was an incredibly innovative idea at the time. I mean, this was almost unheard of. We're coming out of the world of of single-loaded muskets. and I mean, guns had bayonets on the end because once you shot the bullet, they were useless. And if you missed, which people often did because they were pretty inaccurate, you were kind of, you know, up the creek without a paddle. So this was an incredible handgun that really helped pioneers, uh, prospectors, lawmen, every type of person from every walk of life really needed something to protect themselves against various different enemies, you know, be it natural, human, or otherwise. You can tell since I've dedicated so many shows to this topic, this is clearly my favorite part of history. Uh, So let's just get right into this with Jeffrey Richardson, who you will remember from the Howard Hughes episode, and his expertise clearly doesn't end there. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Now, I would imagine that you must have some level of fascination with the Wild West as well. I mean, you spent a lot of time as the curator at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles. The West, is, the West was one of the great narratives of the 19th century America. And, you know, although kind of its legacy has diminished somewhat uh, in the 20th and into the 21st century, it's still a, you know, kind of a very important part of our history. It's still quite fascinating. What I always loved about the West is it was a canvas on which so many different types of stories were told, social, cultural, political, financial, just about anything you wanted to discuss, you could do so through the prism of the American West. (laughs) That's actually a great way to put it. It's actually amazing when you start looking at pop culture, especially in in the 20th century, where you have, you know, the, the, the Western from the Western, the actual Western period is pretty short. It's a little before the Civil War kind of tapers out by 1880. And definitely by the turn of the century, you know, we're, we're pretty civilized. Most of the Westward expansion is, is complete. Uh, when it comes to pop culture, the Westerns, you know, from, from the 1880s to, uh, to the through the 1900s, you had the Buffalo Bill, you know, uh, Wild West show and you had um, several other competitors. You mentioned a few of them in your book that I learned about. I think it was Pawnee Dave or um, actually, Pawnee Bill. Pawnee Bill. Yeah. So you have you know he's one of the one of the big competitors. You have everyone's fascinated with the Wild West, even though it only happened for a brief period. And that fascination continues through radio with the Lone Ranger, uh, through television, uh, and and it kind of 
ends abruptly with us landing on the moon in in 1969. And then from that point forward, the West almost completely dies out. There's little, you know, fits and starts here and there. And in a lot of ways, it's almost similar to the way the actual West worked is once Western, you know, once we civilized the the West, so to speak, was once Westward expansion was done, the Western was over. We were, were done expanding. And it just abruptly ends, and it's kind of had a very similar feel in pop culture. It's just very fascinating. I've just always been intrigued by this on so many levels. And for, you know, as it is very, um, you, know, you can use for so, as you mentioned, it's a canvas for so many different different things. So I, I talked about, on the show, I've talked about railroads. I've talked about barbed wire. I haven't gotten to the telegraph. I didn't talk about the Winchester rifle, although I talked about the Winchester mystery house. But we're, we're, you and I are going to sit down. We are going to eventually get to the Colt single-action army model revolver, which happened in 1872, which is really um, considered one of the two guns that won the West. And the evolution of this is absolutely amazing because this is the gun, correct me if I'm wrong here, that's really, and probably through pop culture, tied into shootouts, the showdowns, you know, things like that. This is the gun we're talking about, correct? The revolver, the six-shooter. Correct. And, and if you were to ask someone, you know, draw a revolver or close your, close your eyes and picture a revolver, what does a revolver look like? What they are thinking of is the Colt Single Action Army Model Revolver. Now, that is a distinct model that was uh, introduced. First, uh, uh, prototypes 1872, like you said, mass production 1873. Uh, but that was a long line that came at the end of a long line of evolution of Colt's revolver, which, you know, dates back basically to the advent of gunpowder and this kind of idea of trying to make guns that could fire more than one shot without having to be reloaded. But that is, that is the cowboy gun. That is the gun that we think of when we think of revolvers, when we think of the American West. It's it's truly one of those great icons of 19th century America. Now, I should mention here, we're talking about your book, Colt, the Revolver of the American West. And it's a great, it's it's almost like a coffee table book. It doesn't read like a history book, which which was, um, I went into it thinking it was going to be like a history of it. It's not. It really focuses on key elements. The Autry Museum has an extensive, a world-class collection of cult revolvers. And you kind of pick very special and important versions and then tell the history of it and how it relates to the history of the revolver. It's an incredible book. Uh, and, and just unbelievable examples of what's going on here. But... I didn't know this, that you had to actually pack each bullet into the revolver. The, the fact that you could shoot multiple bullets was an incredible advancement in, in, in when it came to firearms and projectiles. But I didn't know you had to actually pack the bullets b- bef- you know, way before the, the actual bullet, as we know, the cartridge bullet, as we know it today, was, was invented. Yeah, it, you know, one of the things that the story of Colt kind of tells us is, as you've mentioned, you know, at the outset about the American West, but it's also a story of technology. And the technology can be seen in the way that these guns operate, how they actually fire um, the cartridges or bullets that they use, the types of mechanisms from single action to double action. So that's one of the also great things that Colt allows us to do is it allows us to look at all of these different aspects, not just of the American West, but of industrial manufacturing in America in the 19th century. And that you see in what you're speaking about right now in a way that the guns operate in the way that they actually fired. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it was, that was just really interesting to me because it, it must have been absolutely tedious to actually create your own bullet, put the bullet in, the blasting cap, the the gunpowder every you know six times or five times originally, and then eventually six. I, I, I just seemed like so tedious. And then when you see in the movies when they shoot, you know, f- there's six bullets, and then they throw the gun down and they pull a new gun out. 
it always seemed like such a waste. Keep the gun. But you couldn't because it would take forever in a shootout. It's useless. Once you shot the bullets, it's useless, you know? Absolutely. But think about that, that step from one shot to five and then six. I mean, that was a huge advancement to go from that. So right, that in right. and of itself was a, was a major accomplishment. No, it really was. So let's talk about Samuel Colt, the American Colt. Uh, so Samuel Colt's the inventor. And, and you know, you kind of mentioned that, that this firearm came at the exact right time because as we were expanding west, obviously there's there's – incredible amounts of conflict we're, we're in the middle of colonization we're 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 impeding on people that are already on the land to begin with so we're fighting them killing them kicking them off but we're also fighting other colonists who have come from the south and the north the french and the, and the spanish are, are all coming in uh, and then the civil war hits we're, we're fighting each other so so during this period there's lots of conflict and a lot of need for guns so how did samuel colt kind of come up with his invention and then capitalize on that environment you know, Samuel Colt was, was did not come from a very wealthy family. Um, they, they lived, you know, I guess you could say um, comfortably, but but you know, I would say probably lower middle class. You would kind of think of him in today's standards. Uh, but when he was out to sea, when when he was a teenager and he he was out to sea, he he saw a ship's wheel kind of turning and locking into place, its attachment to the rudder, and he kind of thought wow, I wonder if I could translate that idea into firearms. I wonder if I could do something similar to that, which would have a firearm that would have a mechanically rotating cylinder. And again, this goes back all the way to the 19th century China, when gunpowder around that time when it was first invented or discovered, and the idea of having a firearm that was capable of firing more than one shot without having to be reloaded. That had been the dream of gunsmiths and industrialists for hundreds of years, and Samuel Colt fell into that line as a child. He was always tinkering with things and with mechanical elements, building things. And, you know, as you mentioned, firearms were an important part of not just American society, but kind of world society in the 19th century. And the idea for Colt was, I wonder if I can translate this idea. He kind of had this epiphany moment, according to legend, of course, that, that he saw this and said, I wonder if I can translate this idea to a mechanically rotating cylinder, which would have something that would have five initially and then six shots, which would allow that gun to be able to fire more than one shot without having to be reloaded. Prior to that time, there were other elements. Um, there were things like pepper boxes, which had more than one barrel. You had to turn the gun, and a different barrel was lined up. Uh, there were harmonica guns, which had like a slide, which looked like a harmonica, that you would push over, which would allow it. But there was really no practical firearm that was capable of firing more than one shot when Samuel Colt was out to sea as a teenager, and he stumbled upon this idea that kind of became the genesis for the Colt revolver. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing how that works. Was there, you know, I always kind of explore this topic when people, you know, when lots of innovators come out, there's usually something in their childhood that sparks this. You mentioned you mentioned the, the trip on the boat, but what got him into firearms specifically? Why guns? You know, I, I think, again, it was it was a part of American society. We're, we're constantly debating the role that firearms play in society today. But there's no way of arguing historically the importance of firearms in 19th century America. You know, one of the things Thomas Jefferson pushed was that all kids, you know, even in their, their very youngest days, should learn how to work and know how to use a firearm. It was it was indispensable for self-defense. Self it was indispensable for everyday activities such as hunting. So Samuel Colt was emblematic of his time when he was was fascinated by firearms. I guess that that makes sense. Uh, I didn't know if there's anything that happened to him, or he had a he had one specifically, or he was a good shot. Because what's interesting is 
and we can get to this later, but but it's interesting that he was also, as, as we'll get to, was he was making and creating and inventing and innovating. He was also collecting. He had an incredible collection of firearms with the arch, which, which the Archer Museum eventually inherited from the person who inherited it from him. I believe that was the, the, the line of progression. So it was amazing that he collected them, but he's only you, – you make a point to note that he was only photographed – one time with a firearm, and it was his favorite model, which was, I believe, the the eighty one Navy or the eighteen fifty one Navy. Fifty one, fifty one Navy, eighteen fifty one Navy. So it's kind of interesting. I was just curious if there was any other kind of role that that played because it was just amazing that he collected them but was never seen with them. I don't know if he ever used them or he just innovated. You know, it just seemed like a complex relationship. But we're, you know, and, and he was definitely very good at, at marketing them to the military. That was always his key. It was never commercial. And I didn't know if there was, you know, was this just a month? Was it just about money and he saw a clear opportunity or if he had like his own reasons for this? One of the stories they kind of tell of him as a young child was, you know, I, I guess like other kids, he liked to blow things up. Um, so there's all these stories of him working with gunpowder and explosives yeah. and, and going to school and putting these things on. So again, I, I kind of think it just traces to, to that American character of the 19th century. But, you know, Colt saw himself, you know, he, he was proud to be a gunmaker, but he was an industrialist. He was a manufacturer, right. you know, and that's how he viewed himself. And firearms manufacturers were at the forefront of American industrialization in the 19th century. So, you know, it is somewhat surprising that there weren't a lot of photographs with him holding firearms. But again, for him, it was a much larger story about manufacturing and industrialization. Yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. You know, it's funny, you kind of describe him more like a, like a Wiley e. Coyote character in a way, like you know, he's playing with dynamite and blowing things up. But it's, I love that image of a, of a young Samuel Colt. And also, speaking of, 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 of cartoons, was there ever a seven-shooter? Because that's a, a punchline in, in a lot of my favorite cartoons. So, you know, the, the initial revolver that Samuel Colt makes is a five-shooter, and then it becomes a six-shooter. But the, the Colt revolver itself was either five or six. So there, there's no Colts that I can think of. They, they did have different experimentations. Uh, but again, I can't think of one that was an actual seven-shooter. Okay, all right. <laughs> that's probably just for a comic effect. Uh, so what made – why was Samuel Colt able to crack – as we mentioned, it's the revolving part. It's the multiple bullets. It's the, the actual revolver. What was the kind of the, the nut that he had to crack to, to make this uh, into his first company? Like, what, what was he patenting, and what, what, was that, what was his first company like? Well, again, it was that mechanically rotating cylinder. So this was a gun that was single action, which means that the gun basically performed a single action. Um, what it would do is you would actually have to cock the hammer. So you couldn't just pull the trigger like you do on a modern kind of handgun. You would actually have to cock the hammer. That would rotate the cylinder, that mechanical rotation. And then when you pulled the trigger, the gun did one thing. It dropped the hammer, which began the chain of reaction, which would fire the bullet. So that's a single action. Now, a double action means you just pull the trigger and all of those things are being done by the gun. Um, the hammer is being pulled back, the, the cylinder is rotating, and then the hammer drops, which causes the chain reaction. So for Colt, it was mastering that, that single action, mechanically rotating cylinder. And because this was something that was revolutionary, had never been done before, and because it's on such a small scale, he actually initially worked with a lot of clockmakers because they were used to working on very small scale to put you know uh, pocket washes together. So initially, when he was doing this in the 1830s, he not only worked 
worked with gunsmiths, but he worked with clockmakers and watchmakers to get that intricacy of those parts working in unison to work um, together. But I should point out the first firearm that he ever made, he went to use it and it exploded. Uh, and that was kind of indicative of his early guns. That right. they This was something that it wasn't like he made it, oh my God, it's perfect. I mean, he really worked on it for several years to get it to the point it was. And his initial company ultimately did not succeed because he was still working out those bugs early on for the first few years. Yeah, you know, it's funny, funny you mentioned that that exploded, like the explosives, because when he wasn't, when we'll get to we'll get to this probably, but it's just a good place to mention it. When he wasn't working in Colt and when his first company does fail, he ends up, and, and maybe before he starts, the, before he patents the, um, the the mechanism, the revolving mechanism, he works in underwater mines, and he actually tried to sell some of those prototypes to the government. So he really did like things that exploded. That That is really what his defining characteristic was. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was something that, you know, it was kind of underwater charges that yeah. would kind of protect ports and seas and things like that. And he did that in between his two companies. But he always knew that the, the one great idea he thought he had always come up with was that idea of the revolver. You know, it's, it's so 1835, 1836, he patents this, uh, the prototype. And, and the, the, the history of the patents, not to get, I don't want to bore people with the history of patents, but, but it is really interesting because just the, the the specificity of the patents and where he does them and in what order for some reason is important. Uh, so when he first does it, he he patents this in England, America, and France. But I don't really understand the intricacies. But the way you describe it, he had to patent this in Europe first before he could do it in America. And because of the way patent law was structured, how did that work? And how was he able to secure this incredibly uh, lucrative patent? Basically, Europeans would not recognize American patents. So as a result of that, if he'd have patented in the United States first, anyone then could have copied it. So he knew he was very smart. And you see he uses that name patent in his company names. He's he's always pushing the patent. He understands the importance of it. So he goes overseas first and uh, first goes to Great Britain in October of 1835, a month later in France, gets his patents established in Europe, then comes back to the United States because the American uh, patent laws did not have that same caveat. So as a result, patents in Europe and then comes back to the United States and he is covering basically the entire world. He gets patents in all different companies because he realizes the only way he'll ultimately be able to be successful is if he can prove that this is his invention and that he can make sure that other people cannot knock them off. And this is a a story that he is kind of very ardent about throughout his entire life. And in um, 1857, I mean, he has a monopoly basically until 18. 57 on this revolving mechanism, which means no one else can make revolvers during these first two decades. And in 1851, he's involved in a very famous case where he takes the Massachusetts Arms Company to trial for infringement of his copyright, and he wins. I mean, he's always guarding those patents. Yeah, it was it was really amazing to see just how forward-thinking he was in, you know, in, in protecting these things. And what's actually interesting is there's a couple times he makes a couple missteps where people in his company come up with these ideas and he doesn't patent them, which always surprised me. I think you mentioned, you know, one of them, uh, I, I believe it was him, the, the, the cartridge bullet when people invented a full cartridge instead of having to load and create your own bullets, an actual, like the bullet we know today. Uh, Roland White, I believe, worked for him and he ended up taking that patent to another company and they ended up, you know, kind of burying him with it. And that was like his greatest misstep. That always surprised me because I would think, why not just patent whatever you have in a company that's, you know, in this world just to have that idea as your own and you kind of your back pocket. 
Yeah, it, it just shows kind of the, the one great kind of flaw uh, when in his industrial career where he just didn't see why that would work. He didn't see why it would be efficient. Um, it also gets to this idea of double action revolvers, which weren't as accurate, and he was always worried about that. But it really was a misstep by him. And it ultimately led his company uh, for several years to be in the same predicament that other companies were, where they could not move in the next direction in this evolution of firearms because someone else held a patent. That, But ultimately, when that patent expires, the company, Samuel Colt has passed at this point, the company is able to get right back up to speed. And then we're getting into that story of the single action army. Yeah, it's just really interesting because I'd love this, this patent stuff. Uh, so, so in 1835, he has this prototype. And what I thought was interesting about it, two things. Number one, the prototype has a bayonet on it, which is just so, uh, you know, it's just so so key to the time where you had muskets with bayonets because once they fired, like I said, the gun was useless and now you've given the gun a use. It's a, a spear, so to speak, or, or a very long knife or whatever. I, I thought that was really interesting. And his first company, again with the patents, it's called the Patent Arm Manufacturing Company. This is arguably one of the worst company names in history, I would think. <laughs> Why did he name it after his – he literally named it after his patent. Yeah, and again, that, that gets to him recognizing that the way that this would work would if he could really show why his guns were superior to everything else on the market. And, and he really was about protecting those patents. Um, but yes, th this is a company which has many missteps. I mean, the one great thing about Samuel Colt, he is a great inventor. He's a great marketer. He's a great self-promoter. But it takes him a while to become a great industrialist. I mean, this isn't something that he learns overnight. So this initial company that's established in 1836 in New Jersey is set from, with problems from the outset. And that's due in part to the fact that Samuel Colt was still very young. Um, you know, he was barely into his 20s when this particular company was established, and he still had a lot to learn to ultimately become that industrial titan that he would one day. Well, it was funny because, you know, in the early, especially with this first company, a lot of these guns, they, they weren't that good. They, had a, they were cool. I mean, it's very similar to, like, technology today, right? Like, you have these technologies that are really cool, uh, but they don't always function 100%. It, you know, with these, there were, there were discharges, there, you know, lots of misfires. The, the guns were ex incredibly expensive. So we had a hard time getting them to people. He wasn't getting the military contracts that he wanted. Uh, it wasn't a home run out of the box, which I think some people think. As you mentioned, this was an evolution, and he had a lot of missteps along the way. One of the things I thought was interesting is right around this time, 1837, 1838, he, they produced a revolving rifle, um, which I guess makes sense. And I, I didn't really think of why there weren't other revolving guns, but they actually did work on some of these things. Revolving rifle, revolving carbine, a revolving shotgun. And Samuel Colt initially thought that the revolving rifle was what would be the great kind of genesis. That would be the idea. And you got to think about when you talk about uh, handguns to long arms, rifles, carbine, shotguns being long arms. You know, a, a, a rifle is a lot more practical than a handgun because it can shoot at a greater distance. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you can use a rifle in close combat. You can use it at a distance. So a rifle really is a lot more practical than a handgun is. So Samuel Colt thought that revolving rifle, that would be the thing that would revolutionize the world. But the problem was 
in getting that manufactured, it became very clear that it didn't work on the same scale that the revolving handgun did. And this is also around the time that Oliver Winchester is starting to introduce his, um, his rifles, mm-hmm. and that right. becomes the evolution of the rifle. So you see two di- divergence at this time where the handgun is associated with Colt and the rifle becomes associated with Winchester. And that's a really important moment in history because, as I mentioned earlier, these are the two guns that really win the West is the Winchester rifle and, and the Colt single-action army. These are the two guns that are most synonymous with the West, um, protection against the West and defense on the frontier. And the two great you know, models, uh, the Single Action Army and the Winchester 1873, are both introduced in 1873, and both of them have many of the same size. Um, you can use the same uh, cartridges for those, so they were interchangeable. So you could carry both guns on you, carry the same cartridges, and use them interchangeably, which was important because if you use the wrong cartridge in the wrong gun, it could explode. So the fact that an individual on the frontier, or really anywhere around the world, could carry a Colt revolver on their side and have a rifle over their shoulder, that really was anything that they would be able to need. I love that. I, I guess I didn't really realize that. Was that a conscious effort and decision on the on Winchester and Colt's part to, to have compatible cartridges, or was that just something that the industry and the market kind of forced them to create? It's a little bit of both, because you do see that there's this idea that Colt ultimately, the company, decides that they're not going to go in this line and Winchester's not going to go into handguns. So there is kind of this gentleman's agreement between the two companies, and they do realize that having interchangeable cartridges really is beneficial for everyone. So it's a key moment where, again, you have those two iconic guns that you can use at any time interchangeably, and that, like you said, those are the two guns that are often declared as having won the West. So we have... So we're going back to Colt here. Um, You know, we we talked about this revolving rifle. Now, this is kind of, I thought this was a tragic story, which would probably crush most people, but not Colt. But he's been trying to get these military contracts with these revolving rifles. He goes down to Florida where the Army's fighting the Seminole Indians. Colonel Harney was trying anything he could to get the upper hand down there. And he finally, Colt, finally gets a military contract. But on his way home from Florida, he has a boating accident where he loses everything, his luggage and even the checks that the government gave him. Uh, I mean, how, how terrible is that? But it produced a great document because uh, one of the things that's featured in the book is he then has to write and uh, try to get that money back. Right. Because, I mean, this is that's a, that's money he needed. He needed that money to put that back into the company so the company could succeed. Because the, the federal government was always very apprehensive early on about his guns. You mentioned some of the reasons. Um, they were they were relatively inaccurate. They were expensive. They were almost impossible to fix out in the field. So the government was not supporting his guns, and he needed those military contracts for his company to succeed. So when he gets this small one during the Second Seminole War and then loses the, all of the money associated with it, it really could have been the end of his company. He is ultimately able to recoup that money, and ultimately it's not kind of, does not propel him to the point um, that he would later become, but it is another step forward in his development of his rifles, his handguns, and his company. Yeah, you know, it, it, one of the other things that's really cool about Colt is there were a couple of very interesting innovations. The first is that, I didn't know this, but guns were typically made by hand. And he kind of created the first assembly line, and this is decades before you know Henry Ford kind of does it on a, on a large scale with automobiles, but he kind of, Colt kind of pioneers this. And also he had people, he had hired the finest engravers, which was, he was able to create very specific, almost 
really like the first collectibles. Like nowadays, especially with like comic conventions and stuff, people have collectibles for every property that's out there. But this was a really interesting innovation of engraving individual guns uh, in a specific way, and he gave a lot of them as gifts. These are two really interesting innovations that I think set the tone for, at least in the book, a lot of themes, but what I thought was kind of an interesting theme for Colt as a company. Yeah, he's a pioneer in advertising, product placement, mass marketing. I mean, what Colt realizes is that his guns were very practical. They, they were cutting edge for their technology, for their use, for their functionality. But they were also could be seen as works of art. And he created some of the most beautiful handguns. And he wasn't the first person to embellish his guns, uh, but he really took it to the next level. And he also realized that he got his guns into the hands of key, quote unquote, celebrities. And celebrities of the time were often politicians, um, heads of state, monarchs, and things like that. If he got his guns into their hands, these were also the people that would be then making uh, much larger orders. So he would get those guns to the President of the United States, to the Sultan of Oman, the Tsar of Russia, (laughs) and he would make sure that they had the most opulent examples. And these were guns that were heirlooms. You know, these things are passed down, and you see some of these examples in some of the finest museums around the world to this day, most of which, you know, were never shot because of the fact that they really were works of art. Yeah, I mean, the the example in the book are absolutely incredible. But this also, you know, from a pop culture standpoint, what I love about this is this leads to a lot of credibility to when you when you watch like a western and the good guy or the bad guy has this very specific gun like you know that that's wild bill hickok's gun you know or 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 wesley harden's gun they what they really had that like they may have had a favorite model and i don't know if the, i don't think wesley harden actually had an engraved one but but you had these you could have a person who had a very specific gun for them. I mean, there were even Tiffany and company was able to create special handles. They had Tiffany grips that were basically the grip of the gun. You could really customize your gun to make it specific to you. So there is a lot. There's there's actually facts behind that that kind of Western trope. Absolutely. And, you know, we features in the book a few examples of some of these really opulently engraved guns that were actually used on the frontier. Um, The perfect example is Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who came from a very well-to-do family. And when he goes out to become an actual cowboy, to go out and be a rancher, you know, he goes to Tiffany and Company to get his Bowie knife. He goes to Harley and Graham, (laughs) which was the big company in New York, to get his gun. And it's gold and silver plated and things like that. Now, that's, of course, the exception, not the rule, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt is in just about everything. But it's this idea that, you know, these guns, you could have it at a very base level, but you could also have all of these additions to it, and it would be absolutely fantastic. And again, Colt recognized the power, Samuel Colt recognized the power of this, of having these key individuals using their guns to people to think of these guns as something that they would strive for. And that was really key to his success was this idea of of marketing and promoting his weapons, again, not just because of their functionality, but because of their beauty, because of the fact that this was something that you could pass down to generations. You know, it's just, it's so funny when you look through history and it it really nothing changes right like you know like colt was the first instagram person right and he's looking for influencers to give these guns to that they can show off so that he can make more money you know i mean people are buying these opulent guns and, and they're showing off this wealth it's like a rapper that has a grill right like what's the point of having fake gold teeth except to show it off what's the point of having a gold inlaid gun besides that it, to show it off you know i mean it's the same it's like the same motivations and it doesn't matter what era it is i found that to be absolutely fascinating 
Absolutely. And in 1851, Colt hired George Catlin, who was a noted artist, um, and he hired him to go out into the American West and these other exotic locations in South America using his firearms and then actually painting these um, paintings of these. These were then turned into lithographs. You know, and this wow. is kind of one of the first examples of, you know, an artist being employed to promote a product in America. So <laughs> he did it in so many different ways that he was at the forefront of advertising, product placement. It's really quite spectacular. It really was. I mean, I, I found that to be the most amazing through line through this is just how forward thinking he was. Things that he did, we're still, I mean, this is before P.T. Barnum even, you know, I mean, he was really putting himself out there um, before before that, or at least at the same time. Um, there, there must have been some overlap there. So let's talk about the demise of the patent manufacturing company before, or patent arms manufacturing company. So he was this this idea of giving these guns away and 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 kind of promoting it. This is ultimately, from what I understand, this is what led him to actually being demoted from from the board of his own company, right? So Colt. Um while he was the, the, the inventor of the firearm, he was not financially wealthy. So as a result, when he tries to establish his first company in 1836, the Patent Arms Manufacturing Company, he needs to get a lot of outside investment to get it off the ground. And in doing so, he basically loses control of his patents. He put, turns his patents over to the company. This company is created, and he is basically just a, a on the um, an employee of this company. He was a salesman, a consultant designer, and an engineer. He received an annual salary, a commission for every revolver sold, uh, but he did not own the company. He did not control the company. So as a result of that, when the company started to hit on hard times, he was in a very precarious situation because it was really others that were determining the fate of his company mm. and his revolvers. Wow. And and so he puts, um, I think, is it Elhers? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, he's the yes, first president. Yes, he, it's kind of an interesting story because he then he's the president. Uh, he's in charge, and he attempts to kind of seize and then sell the patents once the company hits on hard times. Which obviously this goes against the very grain of Samuel Colt's uh, existence. And he, you know, and Ellers got his hands on a bunch of the unfinished firearms and tried to approve them and sell them. So he was almost having a fire sale. Uh, he was really treating this like this was the end of, of the whole thing, whereas Samuel Colt was, no, this is really the beginning of a revolution, no pun intended. Yes, and, and Colt was, you know, was really, he spent years uh, trying to not only revive his company, but to revive his name, because his name was now associated with this product that didn't work very well, that, like you had said, had been sold off. Uh, John Ellers made these modifications to the gun kind of sold them as as kind of what he was advancing moving forward. So Colt found himself in this very difficult situation where this company goes under after only a handful of years. Um, it looks like it's going to be a bust, uh, but he really still believes in this product. And he knows if he continues to seek out endorsements, if he continues to look for the successes that have taken place, he just might be able to revive this company. Well, and, and one of the things we mentioned is, is kind of in a way, the guns aren't that great. You know, we can both admit that he's got this great idea behind the, the, the multi-shot gun, but it's not it's not a great gun. It's not perfect. So the company, the, the patent manufacturing company uh, is, is dissolved. It goes away. And, you know, after that, as we mentioned, Colt starts designing sea mines and waterproof powder cartridges. So he kind of goes away from the revolver. But as you mentioned, he really believed in this. He talks to, uh, who at, at the time was a national hero, Captain Samuel Hamilton Walker, and uh, well, from what I understand, Walker really believed in in the cult. He used them during the Mexican-American War. And with his help, Colt and Walker kind of get together and redesign and kind of improve the cult, right? And this this kind of leads to the new company. 
So Walker had actually used them um, in Texas. He, he was a former Texas Ranger and had used them as other Texas Rangers could. And that's really where kind of the, the battleground, that's where the proving ground, I should say, where his guns were, were ultimately the, the effectiveness were shown. And that was in, um, in the, the Republic of Texas. So Walker had seen how these guns were, were used in Texas. And ultimately, when Colt seeks out Walker's recommendation for the gun, Walker says it's better than anything on the market. But if you make a few minor improvements, it will be even better. And Colt, instead of kind of, you know, his ego flaring up, he realizes this guy knows what he's talking about. He's used my guns out in the out in the field. So as a result, the two of them get together. They make some modifications to the gun. And with Walker's connections, they are able to get orders placed for the Mexican-American War. And that ultimately leads Colt back into firearms manufacturing and really is the beginning of his second company and his ultimate dominance of firearms and manufacturing. So the Walker model, which is what they kind of, this is kind of the, the culmination of this collaboration this said the, the this was the largest and most powerful black powder revolver ever made is that was it at to that time or ever ever i mean it's it's having you know having had the opportunity to handle so many of these guns i mean it's you really have to think of what it took because this was designed to be in the during the mexican-american war it was designed to be used by someone on horseback so you just have to imagine you're you're galloping on a horse someone's firing at you you're in the middle of a battle and you have this hulking piece of steel and it's so big and the kick behind it so i mean it really kind of shows that they were still revolving because what you see ultimately beyond this is some of the guns get smaller, they get more practical, and as a result of this, uh, but it, it's a very large, very powerful handgun. There are a few examples where some of Colt's other earlier guns, which were revolving rifles and revolving shotguns, were actually cut down to become handguns, and these things, there's one or two pictured in the book, these things are actual monstrosities. I mean, to think of how someone actually used a cut-down rifle as a handgun, I mean, this really does come out of, you would think, out of a television western, where they have some <laughs> of the most impractical guns ever shown. Right. Um, but yes, the, the Walker really was that evolution. It, it's not only the most powerful and largest black powder handgun ever made, it's really considered the holy grail of Colt firearms because it was the gun that proved the effectiveness of the, the walk, of, of Colt's design. And there were only about 1,100 of them made, only 200 still in existence. And because they were used so roughly on the Mexican-American War, most of those that still do exist are in very terrible condition. But that is the gun that ultimately propels Colt and into his second company, which is the one we think of today. Right. So in 1855, he incorporates the Colt Patent, again with the patents, Colt Patent Firearms Manufacturing Company, threw his name on that one, kept the patent in there to make sure we know that he's using patents to make these guns in case anyone, lest anyone forget. You know, you talk about unwieldy guns, it makes me think of, when you talk about movies, a sawed-off shotgun. You know, there are people who basically take a shotgun, saw off the barrel, saw off the stock, and use that as a handgun, which essentially can just melt anything or anyone that it shoots, which is a devastating weapon. But that has to be the most unwieldy hand, quote unquote, modified handgun in existence, because that would, you know. Uh... Yeah, I think of I think of Mayor's Lake, Steve McQueen from Wanted Dead or Alive, <laughs> right. where he had a cut down Winchester that he would flip and things like right. that. Uh, so you know, yes, you know, but it, but it's interesting because you know you think, oh gosh, that's only you only see that in TV, you only see that in the movies. But if you dig back deep enough, you do actually see some of these examples from the American frontier, which is really amazing. Could, could you imagine coming across that on the frontier, no. some guy with this cut down? old rifle um, using it. So, you know, gosh, you know, the stories that get lost to history, but luckily we still have some of these artifacts to exist to, to show that, you know, it did actually happen. You got to tell me honestly here, when you were at the Autry Museum and you were handling all these amazing guns, did you, I mean, 
routinely you must have picked them up and been like, pew, pew, pew. I mean, were you ever like <laughs> kind of giddy with that? <laughs> Well, the, the first thing that struck me with picking up the walker, with picking off one of these um, cut-down um, old rifles, was, again, just how heavy they were. I mean, I had a hard enough time just trying to pick it up and steady it. I couldn't imagine actually using it. And, gosh, the idea of using it on horseback, uh, on a mounted rifle, that, to me, I just I couldn't imagine, you know, because you just kind of have to think of the men that must have done this must have been huge, but that wasn't necessarily the case in the 19th century. So a lot of these guns were just, they had to have been just as impractical then as they are now. Yeah. What what's even more amazing is, as we mentioned with the wild West shows, there were people who were incredibly accurate, incredible shots who could do these shoot cards in the air, you know, on horseback. Annie Oakley is one of those. Wesley Harden was, was, and she was tiny and she was tiny. I mean, she was really, really small. So to think about that, absolutely. I mean, the people that could do it, you know, and she's, she's the greatest example. Right? Yeah, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, so he, he incorporates this company, and right off the bat, he sells 1,000 guns. I think he sells 2,000 guns, two separate orders. And he takes that money, and he goes into gun making essentially full time. What I thought was interesting here is there's this kind of crossover. Eli Whitney Jr., who is the son of Eli Whitney, the creator of the, inventor of the cotton gin, that company was creating these Walker models, if I understand the story correctly, and and with those tools, uh, they were creating. So he was basically repurposing tools to make this these rifles for for Colt. And then Colt, with that money that he sold the guns for, then buys that equipment from Eli Whitney Jr. Is that am I getting this, the facts right? Correct, because he didn't have his own company, so he had to go to someone else. Uh, Eli Whitney Jr. was making firearms, so he gets a lot of that. One of the things you have to realize is not only are these guns revolutionary, but the, the equipment and the manufacturing techniques used to create them are also revolutionary, and he needs to create the equipment to create the guns. And one of the individuals he hires is E.K. Root. Um, he is basically his superintendent, and it said that you know Samuel Colt invented the revolver. E.K. Root figured out how to make the revolver, and it was really uh, surrounding himself with these really other great minds that allowed this company to flourish. And I need to point out that when he establishes his second company, he doesn't make the mistake of the earlier company. He controls just about 100% of the company because, you know, come hell or high water, if this company succeeds or if it fails, Samuel Colt's going to make sure he is not put in that same situation before where he is a mere employee of the company. So this company now is Samuel Colt's company, 100%. Yeah, I love that. And you have this this great quote where basically Colt invents, invents to the gun, but Root figured out how to make it. And Root is the one who patents the equipment. So again, with the patents, a well-named company, uh, he, he patents the equipment so that even, which is crazy because then if anyone wants to use that equipment, then whether they're, you know, then they have to buy the equipment from them as well, or at least the, the license, the, the patents from them. Uh, that's a pretty interesting, uh, a pretty shrewd business deal, I think. And one of the things I should mention here is one of the other reasons that the military didn't want to adopt some of these multi-shot weapons was they believed that people, the soldiers, that the multi-shot weapon would lead to wasted ammo, which is such an interesting, I mean, when you think about today, how ludicrous that is. But at the time, that must have been a real concern. Well, they weren't getting a lot of training. So as a result, they were terrible shots. Right. And, you know, and you think right. of those those 
those stories, you know, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. Well, that was done for two reasons. One, the guns didn't fight, weren't very accurate at these distances, but also you only had one shot. So as a result, they wanted to make sure you were very close before you actually fired. You know, you, you see those old movies where all that black powder and all this smoke and all right. of this is you can barely see anything. So, yeah, the, the military brass was initially terrified that they would can these guns, which were expensive, ammunition was expensive, to these um, soldiers who were terrible shots, and they would just shoot, 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 and the cost would go up. So that was one of the big stumbling points that they had to get across. But by this particular time, the gun has proven its effectiveness. Um, also, a big difference between the first two companies is now the guns are completely made of interchangeable parts. His first company was getting to that point, but not every individual gun was made of interchangeable parts. There was a lot of hand fitting in the very kind of final part of putting it together. But now all of his guns are made from interchangeable parts on an assembly line. And like you mentioned earlier, this is decades before Henry Ford is doing this with the automobile. Right. And, you know, th th I think the Dragoon in 47, 1847 is the first interchangeable parts. This is interesting because, you know, when, when all I have as a reference is the modern revolver, you know, the swing out chamber that spins around, you put the bullets in, you pop it back in, uh, very easy to use. Again, that was an evolution. And so just the fact that you could change parts around what was really that was an innovation and you know as you mentioned with this new company it kind of pops into there uh in 1849 we got we got another patent issue here his patents are going up and so he needs to renew them which he successfully does which essentially gives him a monopoly until like 1857 or 1859 right correct yes and the idea, he, what he had to be able to do is he had to prove that his initial patent, because you get X amount of years, so he had to prove that his initial patent, that he was not able to uh, benefit as a result of it. So again, he's constantly recognizing the importance of patents, and he's making sure others cannot come into the market. And he is just dominating the field to the point by the time that his patents expired and others start introducing revolvers, the name Colt has become the superior product. So individuals would prefer to use Colt over one of its competitors, even if one of those competitors are just as good because of the history, because of the legacy that he establishes while he has control over those patents. And a lot of this stuff comes at very key times. 1849, uh, people may not recognize that right out of the box, but anyone who's watching the end, the, 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 watching football will know the 49ers, where, that, where the name comes from, and these were gold miners that came out to California in 1849. They, right around these patents are, uh, that are getting renewed, they're loving uh, you know, his model 1849 pocket, uh, pocket model. So he's every there, there's there's so many different he's making a gun for all these very specific groups that are exploding no pun intended again out in the West and and he's really marketing these things extraordinarily well with all these innovations. Yeah, and it's not just like like you're alluding to. It's not just one particular model. He's making different models and different calibers, different sizes. Um, and the idea is, you know, you're you're flooding the market. So anyone who may need a gun, I might need a small gun that I can conceal with me at all times. I may need a large gun because I'm out hunting or self-defense. So he's making distinct models for just about every conceivable market out there. And as a result of that, Colt is considered, you know, kind of ubiquitous. If you need a handgun. 
You want to get the best. You want to get a Colt. And no matter what you need it for, there will be a gun specifically for you. Yeah, and I also love that, that he names the, the gun after the year that it comes out, almost like a car. You know, I mean, it's like the, well, no, see, one of the things that's that's an interesting point. Now, Winchester is going to stamp their guns with the actual model. So the 73 is going to say that on there. Colt doesn't do that. And one of the problems that this ultimately leads to is there's going to be a fire at the factory and a lot of the records get burned. So when modern historians try to make sense of these guns, they start assigning those particular numbers to them. They actually make a few mistakes, though. So the 1849 and the 1851 revolvers actually both came out in 1850. Oh. It was discovered years later, but because by that point we had already started calling it the 49 and the 51, those names just kind of stick. Oh. So Colt made it a little bit tricky for us, where Oliver Winchester, for us historians and museum professionals, made our lives a little bit easier. Right, he had the foresight to make your job easier, whereas Colt was a little selfish. Yes, and I, and, and I appreciate right, that. Yes, right. thank you. So do I. Uh, you know, it's, it's, what, what, there's this great story about, in 1852, one of the only, I think the only other overseas factory was in London, and Charles Dickens, the famous author, British author, Charles Dickens comes to visit the factory and writes a review of Samuel Colt's firearms factory. Uh, this is amazing to me. One of the things, you know, we, we think of nowadays of, of exporting American jobs or factories overseas. It's a really terrible thing. It's very negative. But in the 1850s, Samuel Colt is going to establish the first American, manu he's going to be the first American manufacturer to establish a factory overseas, outside of his home country. And this is an amazing moment because it really shows that American industrial might is on par with anywhere else, especially those big powers in Europe. So when he establishes that company in London, in 1852. It's a celebrated moment in American manufacturing history. And when Charles uh, Dickens goes to tour the factory, he states that the technology in use cannot be seen under one roof elsewhere in all of England. So here you have him saying, this is the, the, the greatest and the best technology I have ever seen. And really, you also see that in the United States. Um, when Mark Twain, when he writes A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, you, you have to remember the protagonist in that book worked for Colt's company. And the idea was, again, they are at the forefront of industrial manufacturing around the world in the 19th century. So these two great authors are recognizing that. And again, this idea of exporting American products overseas in the 1850s really put Colt above other American manufacturers. Yeah, you know, we're still getting to the evolution of the single-action army, but it's amazing to me that that, is, that model was, was basically was produced until the onset of World War II, and now you, they've, re, they've started making them again. So you can still buy brand-new copies of this gun. There was a sales office. Well, you know, in 1857, they, they, the factory closed down, but they kept people there to repair the guns that were already in London. But they kept the sales office open until 1912, long after much more innovations had gone on. But, but they had enough to sell Colts there until 1912, almost, what, 67 years after they closed the factory? Yeah, and, and the single-action army, like, you're, like you've talked about, that we'll get to here in a moment, you know, that particular gun you can still buy to this day. And, and there's really, I can't think of any other they're off the top of my head, really 19th century gun, you know, Winchester is probably, I guess, the other example that you would use today just as you would in the 19th century. And people still use it, you know, um, black powder competitions, uh, single action shooting competitions. There, there's entire sport around using these guns because they're just as popular today in many regards as they were back then. Yeah. So, you know, we so we have an eight, the 1851 Navy that was Colt's favorite firearm. In 1855, as I mentioned earlier, this is where Roland White basically shows he has the revolutionary cartridge bullet 
Colt rejects this, and he takes it to Smith & Wesson, who, who then runs with it. And then, again, as you mentioned, he had to circumvent patents until almost 1869. And I didn't realize what an innovation this was because I, I didn't even think you had to create your own bullets. You had to pack your own bullets in the gun. But, but having a cartridge bullet like we have nowadays, that was a huge innovation. What a misstep on Colt's part. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is when we think of when, when the average person thinks of a bullet, they're actually thinking of a cartridge. And a cartridge contains all of the things needed to fire that particular bullet. Um, so the, 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 the percussion cap, as it used to be, um, the gunpowder and the bullet are all in that metallic cartridge. But prior to that time, as you've talked about, you had to load those individual pieces. So the, the great patent for this particular one is you actually had the cylinder was bored all the way through, where before the cylinders, you could not like stick something all the way through. There was a little nipple on the end where you would put the percussion cap. So that was the next great um, evolution in firearm technology. Colt failed to recognize it. And as a result, his company is going to play catch up for about two decades when this becomes the dominant new revolving mechanism and feature is that, again, you have a self-contained metallic car cartridge that contains all of those elements needed for the bullet to ultimately fire in a single unit that you can easily put into a cylinder, which makes loading and unloading a lot easier. Well, and then, you know, for then they have to start creating these conversion systems for for cartridge bullets, which become very clunky. Here, this is a very interesting, another interesting overlap here. 1859, they talk about adding a stock to the revolver. But Colt credits Jefferson Davis, uh, at this point, future president of the Confederate States of America. He credits him with the invention of a stock on a revolver. Uh, Davis admits that it was existed in Europe before, but this is a really interesting innovation. And and just to be clear, in the book, you talk about a stock canteen. So are they putting a stock on a revolver that you can also drink water out of? Uh, absolutely, yes. And okay, we, we hope right. it's just water. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> right. the idea was, you, you know, because rifles... Rifles can shoot at a greater distance, but they're also because you're not you're not holding it out there because you're steadying it against your arm or you're putting it on something. It's a lot more accurate. So how do you turn a handgun into a more accurate rifle? And one of them is you would attach a stock to it, which would allow you to hold it up like a rifle, which would make it a lot more accurate. So you see that being used as well. How can we make these guns? What are other accessories that we can sell alongside our firearms to make them more appealing, not only functionality wise, but also aesthetically pleasing? So that there's all these other tangents about the revolver as well, and that's one perfect example. Well, and and so this leads us to the Civil War, uh, and and this is this is really you know this is an important obviously important piece of of American history, but also Western history. What I love about this is you you make a point to mention that we don't really know Colt's feelings on slavery. What I love about this is Colt doesn't care. You know, I'm guessing he doesn't care. He may have had his own feelings. All he wanted to do was sell guns to both sides. So this is, you know, this is kind of the conflict we talk about even today when we when we have wars, modern warfare. It's who benefits from these things? Well, it's the arms manufacturers. And and to me, this is a perfect example of Colt playing both sides as long as it was legally, as long as he was legally allowed to do so. Colt recognizes kind of early on in the 1850s that, you know, the hostilities between North and South are probably going to lead to war. So he's reaching out to both sides, governors in northern states, southern states, saying, you know, you want to stockpile. And if you're going to stockpile, you want the best guns of 
available, and that's my revolver. So he's selling guns to both sides, which, of course, is legal. They're all Americans at this particular time. But even after Fort uh, Sumter in South Carolina falls in April of 1861, Colt continues to sell guns to the South until Congress officially bars such sales. Again, he's not breaking any laws here. But then ultimately, when it is declared illegal, you can no longer sell guns to the South. Colt becomes a very strident um, unionist, and he, he ramps up his factory. He changes what guns are being made um, based on orders from the federal government. And it gets to the point where his handgun, uh, the 1860 Army revolver, is probably the greatest contribution he makes to the war. It's 44 caliber, and it's the most popular sidearm used by Union troops during the war. And I should point out that you know the Civil War was primarily fought by individuals carrying muskets or rifles. So the, the handguns, the average troop did not have. Um, officers often had handguns. But again, the handgun of choice, not only on the American frontier, but during the Civil War was a Colt revolver. Yeah, I mean, the government purchased 130,000 of them during the war, which is amazing. Uh, I also want to mention one of my favorite characters in history is Wild Bill Hickok, and he had an ivory-handled eight, uh, 1851 Navy, which, which, which I love. I think there's a, you have a picture of it in the book. It's amazing. So we, we've got the Civil War right around this time. I mean, before, uh, you know, before the Civil War ends, Colt dies in 1862, his his uh, his widow takes over the company and runs the company. E.K. Root, as we mentioned before, becomes the second president. So th- even before the Civil War ends, Colt Colt dies, but the, the uh, but Elizabeth Colt does an incredible job of of carrying the company forward. And as you mentioned, there's this big fire in 1864 where they basically lost everything: diagrams, uh, schematics, machines, notes. Only one person died. Uh, but but just a devastating, historically devastating, and obviously at the time financially devastating. And Colt, who loved patents, apparently hated insurance. I mean, I can't get through a football game without seeing 17 different insurance company uh, commercials. And I can't help but wonder if Colt's factory being destroyed by a fire, it was not the impetus for some of these commercials. Well, he, he thought his company was fireproof, uh, which obviously proved not to be the case. Um, <laughs> like the Titanic was sinkproof. Unsinkable. Yeah, right, unsinkable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this is another great mistake of his. Um, but it is believed that the armory in Hartford is set on fire in February of 1864 by Southern saboteurs who recognize the contribution that Colt is making to the Union war effort. But Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Colt, Samuel Colt's widow, a, an amazing woman, a remarkable story could fill up an entire show. You know, one of the first things that she does is she says, we're going to rebuild the factory and we're going to build it even better, you know, bigger, even better. And she does. And she guides the company into the early 1900s. And again, she is able to do so at a time when obviously the role of women is questioned in American society. And and she admirably leads this company after Samuel Colt's passing during some of its greatest moments, which includes that kind of expansion into the American West after the Civil War. Yeah, and it's amazing. And it's un- and this is what uh, this is to me the fact that the podcast we're getting to right on time, which is the single action army model, the gun that wins the West, was was produced. Ten years after Colt's death and under the, the watchful eye of his widow, Elizabeth Colt, that's when it comes out. It's 1872, the single-action army it comes out. And this was, this is, as you mentioned, this is the single-action hammer has to be cocked before firing, which you get some of those incredible, one of my favorite movies is Tombstone. And then in that OK Corral scene where Doc Holliday is like fanning the back of the hammer, just blasting off, you know, six rounds at rapid pace. That's why he has to do that, because it doesn't you, you can't pull the trigger back without the hammer being cocked. Uh, this is, you know, you have not you, but 
the original is still in the Autry Museum, and and this is just amazing. But it still has a fixed cylinder, which I thought that was was, was crazy. The, the the cylinder is is affixed. It is a part of the actual structure of the the revolver itself. The swinging what we've come to know as the swinging revolver uh, cartridge isn't invented until much later. But still, this becomes the gun, and ten years after Colt's death is when it's introduced. Yeah, so this is when, you know, it's in, the, it's in the two decades after the American Civil War that Americans, millions of Americans flood their way into the American West. And, you know, firearms are indispensable. They say that the three tools that really settled the American West are the plow, the axe, and the firearm. Everyone in the American West is either using a firearm or some way dependent upon a firearm, be it uh, settlers, Native Americans, um, law enforcement, outlaws. Everyone is using firearms or dependent upon firearms in some way. And it Again, if you want the best handgun, if you could only buy one, they're expensive, but if you could only buy one handgun, you're going to want Colt's revolver. Because at this particular time, by 1873, when the single action army is introduced, um, prototypes in 1872, that gun is really seen as the, the kind of the, the evolution, the, the culmination of all of this technology that we have talked about. It's easy to operate. It's extremely efficient. It comes in all of these different calibers. You know, it comes in different barrel sizes, grip sizes. And again, like someone, Teddy Roosevelt, they can get it coated in gold with ivory <laughs> right. uh, grips or, you know, with their names carved in their initials on the side. So Colt's revolver, when American Western expansion is at its peak, is also at its peak. And as a result, the two are interchangeable. And when we think of these American West, like you've referenced several times, the gun that won the West, we think of Colt's revolver, and we're specifically talking about the single-action army model uh, introduced in 1873 and still being produced even to this day. Yeah, there was a, there was a break between you know between World War II and I think the uh, 50, 1956, but you know this thing's been in production for almost a hundred and what fifty years or something like that. The military bought. 37,000 between 1873 and 1891 they produced it up until uh, up until um, right before World War II where they, they focused on other weapons but this is I mean they had no major changes in almost 70 years uh, for that particular model obviously they had they had other innovations on other models but it's just amazing to me that this was such a reliable gun that it was produced for so long. Uh, that that is just absolutely phenomenal to me. Uh, this this and, and it's you know cemented once you know once the fifty. I believe that it's actually the popularity of westerns which actually kicks off the reproduction of this model again. Correct. You, you are correct. So it, it, they stopped producing it around World War II because they basically, just as they had done during the Civil War, the company is going to really focus on government orders. They're going to retool their machines and their factory to produce those guns that are absolutely needed. And there were individuals like George Patton who were carrying a revolver out into Europe, uh, but the average troop did not. So as a result of this, they stopped production on it. But then when Western television shows are at their peak in the 1950s and 1960s, just about every Western television star carries a single action army model. They become so popular, there's a clamor among the public that they also want to start buying these guns again. So they start to resume production on these guns. And one of the things that I always think is funny in both TVs, shows, and in movies is obviously this gun comes out in 1873. You can watch a movie set in the 1860s and they have this gun. They're using this gun. Obviously an anachronism because it's not produced at that time. And I think those people working on these shows know that this is not historically accurate, but I think they also recognize that 
this gun has become part of that, you know, narrative, part of that picture. So if they see cowboys who aren't carrying this gun, well, it's 1860, it looks wrong. It is, you know, it, it, they shouldn't be carrying them. They didn't exist at the right. time. But I think because we've become so associated with it, you see people in the 1860s in television and movies carrying this gun because, again, that's what we think of when we think of the American West is we think of this particular gun. And television and movies played a really large role in that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it affects its revisionist history based on popularity. It's pretty amazing. Uh-huh. We got to the, to the, it was a close call, but we finally got to the evolution. We, we hit the single action army. You're going to stick around. We're going to talk about some of the accessories because, as we mentioned, there are lots of things that people could do to, to really uh, to kind of modify their, their own gun in incredible ways and the commemorative versions. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, but how can people find you, find your book, uh, and get in touch with you? Uh, well, you know, again, I, I don't do a lot of social media, um, but my books are available on Amazon. This particular book is now in its second printing. There's two different versions, uh, exact same book, exact same content, exact same wonderful photography, which the staff at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles did. Um, and that book does feature all examples. And it's not just revolvers. It's the things we've talked about, the patents, the accessories, all of these types of things are featured in the book. And you can find that uh, just about any major retailer will have that today. And it's Colt, the Revolver of the American. American West. Colt, The Revolver of the American West. It's an incredible book. I, I, you can buy it just for the pictures. I mean, these are just incredible examples. Uh, Jeffrey Richardson, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks again. I do appreciate it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you love the show, you should never miss an episode. I wouldn't want that to happen. You shouldn't want that to happen. You can find us on all the podcasting platforms. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and, of course, Spotify. You can find us there. If you want to learn more about the guests or even listen to previous shows, you can do all of that on the website, fascinatingnouns.com. You can even follow the show on social media. Bottom of the page, you'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages. And you can subscribe to the newsletter and you'll get all kinds of information, not only on Fascinating Nouns, but my other podcasts like Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies. I sit down with a couple of scientists and we talk about pop culture technology and tell you how to make it in real life. You can find all of that on the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, and you like FGGBT, you might like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.